There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip, a podcast about political decision-making during a racial revolution. Stay tuned as we parse through the weekly decisions being made by our political leaders that impact the Black community. You ready? Let's do it. On this week's episode, we discuss some of the top headlines from the week of November 29th, including Christopher Freeland delivering the fall economic statement. It has monies. Toronto getting closer to taxing vacant homes. The real reason for increased gun violence on Toronto's streets. Black folks are suing the feds. Nasdaq's push for greater equality among leadership. And the judges Trump appoints to the bench ain't loyal. This week, Deputy Finance Minister and Minister of Everything, Christopher Freeland, delivered the government's fall economic statement, which gave a snapshot of what the government has spent since COVID, while giving us an idea of what the government plans to do once COVID is a thing of the past. The FES shows that by March, we'll have accrued a $381.6 billion deficit and that it could still rise. But that comes as a result of spending to keep Canadians solvent and healthy. We have to remember, this is the biggest challenge we've faced as a country since the Great Depression and the worst public health crisis since the Spanish flu. So all that money went into things like CERB and rent assistance, the wage subsidy, and of course, a whole lot of PPE. To put into perspective about how much money the government actually spent, they put forth $322 billion, which amounted to eight out of $10 spent on COVID. So literally 82.7% of all COVID-related spending, was done by the federal government. We also lost revenue from the economy being brought to a standstill. The FES had a few interesting takeaways, though, like the government's plan to provide subsidized child care to women, green retrofits for all, a Netflix tax, and a promise to spend up to $100 billion to stimulate the economy. On child care, Freeland said the government will create a new federal secretariat on early learning and child care that'll work with the provinces, to design a new national system modeled on the $10 a day model in Quebec. More details are expected when she delivers her budget sometime in the spring, but she's committing $20 million now to start the process of creating that child care vision, as she calls it. The government says the need for such a national system is obvious now, given how COVID-19 has demonstrated the precariousness of work for many women. And as Freeland has said, quote, Canada can't be competitive until all Canadian women have access to affordable childcare, end quote. $400 million will also be spent on climate change retrofits. The FES commits $2.7 billion for home energy retrofits, including $150 million for zero emission vehicle infrastructure, permanent funding for public transit and transit system electrification, 
and $3.16 billion for nature-based solutions to climate change, like tree planting, which we've talked about before. There's also a Netflix tax. Freeland also announced a plan to start taxing consumers on digital services like Netflix and Spotify nationwide for the first time. Uh, just so we're clear, though, there actually is a tax already in place similar to this in BC, Saskatchewan, and Quebec. The new tax could raise as much as $1 billion over the next five years, and it looks like most Canadians are actually in favor of it. There'll also be more tax and regulations put on internet giants by 2022. And then there's also support for families. The economic statement commits the government to boosting the Canada Child Benefit Program with temporary supports of $1,200 in 2021 for uh, kids under six in low and middle income families. So again, in full, this budget shoots way up to $381.6 billion this year, then it drops to $121.2 billion next year, then drops again to $24.9 billion, which is below where we were before the pandemic. So what are, we, what are our thoughts on all this spending? Is it going in the right places? Are we happy with this? When you have a woman as the Minister of Finance, the way that the, the economic statement looks is different than when a man does it. I, I don't know if that's, that's maybe just me paying more attention because I really enjoy watching Christian Freeland govern. But if you look at what she has done, she is really trying to make it easier on, on people who are taking care of children, which we know dis- disproportionately falls to the woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in addition to, 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 to that, I think what a lot of us are maybe not really talking about, I, I don't hear a lot of people talking about how millennials are, you know, s- struggling to start families. And we're getting to the, the point where it will be very, very difficult for us to start families just because of our age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we get that $10 a day childcare program in Ontario, in, in the rest, like across Canada, that will change everything. Currently, daycare in the city of Toronto can be as high, easily as high as $2,000 a month. Yep. Easy. Very easily. Yep. And it's, it's, it's much the same in other major cities, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver. And if we get to a point where people can, you know, truly kind of grow up uh, and be, be allowed to, to, to kind of start their, their lives, I, th- I think this will fundamentally change the way that we work, the way that we live, and will give millennials the next five years to, to do the work that the government is expecting us to do. Mm-hmm. The government is relying on those of us who are, you know, 25 to about 40 now to rebuild this country because we're the ones who can do it. Like we're, we're the ones who are at that critical stage where we can switch careers. We can be entrepreneurs. We, we can do all of that and pivot very easily. So in order for us to do that, you need to, you know, allow us to live our lives, have children uh, to, um, you know, get, get a little bit more money in child support uh, and, and help us to, to really fulfill our, our lives. And we haven't been able to do that up until now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Now for what the opposition is saying. We'll start with the NDP. Jigmeet Singh said the Liberal plan pushes national child care further down the line when support is needed now to help people. And this is a quote directly from Jigmeet. What that means is families are making the impossible choice, saying we can't find a place for our kids to go. And that's a shame. Now, that's true. But like Christian pointed out herself, she can't just wave a magic wand to create a multi-billion dollar pan-Canadian system. It takes time, right? The Conservatives? 
I, I, I honestly, patients, I don't know what they're on. They keep shouting, we need rapid testing to keep the economy open. And where's the plan for the vaccine distribution? Which is incoherent since the government already ordered 38 million rapid tests and started distributing them to the provinces last month. The thing is, though, even with the fact that we now have these rapid tests, they're basically useless. The results are unreliable. In some cases, people are being tested with rapid tests, then in labs as well for confirmation, which, of course, defeats the purpose of rapid testing in the first place. We knew this. That's why the government was hesitant to buy them. But the conservatives made this an issue. And so here we are, millions spent for nothing. For our money's sake, I hope the technology starts to improve as time goes on. Further, Trudeau announced that our military will be leading the vaccine distribution. So I don't know. I think I'll start listening to the conservatives when they actually start making sense. Jumping to the Canadian economy, Toronto's getting closer to taxing vacant homes. City staff are recommending that Toronto start taxing vacant homes to discourage the hoarding of property, which contributes to high rent prices. The plan was first announced in 2017, but shelved then for more study. Now it's back, and if adopted, the city would start collecting the tax in 2022. Why do we need this? Between 2006 and 2016, the median household income in Toronto grew by 25%. I guess that's not bad. While median monthly rents grew by, wait for it, four times that amount. 109%, fam. Shit is way too expensive. And one of the ways to reduce prices is by improving supply. How much supply are we talking? On the one hand, it's impossible to know just how many vacant homes there are in Toronto. But the city says there's anywhere from 9,000 to 27,000 homes that have, quote, extremely low to very low consumption volumes, end quote, for hydro usage, which could point to them being vacant. And that doesn't take condos into account since they're bulk metered and therefore wouldn't be represented in those numbers. So there could be even more. So if we only use the numbers that I already mentioned and tax those homes at 1%, patients, the city could raise between 55 and $66 million a year that could be invested in, say, I don't know, more affordable housing. So what are your thoughts on that, patients? Good move? We have to do this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like, they need to pedal to the metal, do this faster. Mm. Because, it. I mean... This is the only way to control the problem, right? Apparently, we don't have enough homes when we do, I mean, or, or maybe, maybe we do have enough homes, but we have maybe owners in Singapore who own like, you know, five condo units and are just using it for an investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to tax the shit out of those vacant homes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some people are probably asking, well, how will it be done? And the way that they implement it is similar to what's being done in Vancouver, where they have a universal declaration approach. That means that every homeowner would be required to fill out a form annually declaring whether their property is, quote, occupied, vacant, or vacant with exception for the majority of the year. TREB, which is the Toronto Real Estate Board, doesn't seem to be in favor of the tax, saying it's not clear what the tax would accomplish. Do they not understand what taxes do? I mean, I but like literally, I like in my head, all I see is soldier boy being like, "What? <laughs> you don't know what you're accomplish?" Anyway, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Anyway, uh, like John Tory said, 
quote, we know from Vancouver's experience that the sky didn't fall when this tax was brought in in any way, shape or form, end quote. So I'm all for it. Moving on to other news in the economy, at the beginning of last month, we told you about banks like TD and RBC, who were cutting their investments in oil and gas exploration to do their part to meet net zero goals. BMO becomes the latest bank to be added to the list, although their reasoning for the divestment isn't entirely motivated by doing what's right for the climate and our health. BMO will halt investment banking tied to U.S. oil and gas exploration, which even before the pandemic was on a decline due to more investments in renewable resources. They'll keep their Canadian and global oil and gas portfolio, though, which accounts for $93 million total. I don't know. That sounds really small to me. I don't know. Yeah, me as well. Especially, I think, you know what, especially considering that um, the U.S. portfolio was almost $500 billion or a million. This move comes on the heels of America's shale industry experiencing record consolidations due to decreased oil demand, which have forced low premium merger. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This week in our Blackity Black Black News, we have an update on the Joyce Etchequan case. Daniel Castonguay has been removed from the position of CEO, La Naudière Integrated Health and Social Services Center, but moved to another position within the Quebec healthcare network. Anyway, in response to widespread criticism of the hospital's treatment of Indigenous patients, in particular Joyce Etchequan, Castonguay told La Presse in an interview last month that he was shocked to learn of such racist remarks among his staff. This, of course, is despite reports that there had been many complaints of racism at the hospital in the past. So the Legault government made their decision as it had become obvious that the bond of trust between the Indigenous community and the direction of the La Naudière was broken, according to information obtained by the Canadian press. And there are two examples of this. Paul Emile Ottawa, chief of Conseil the Atikimek de Manawan has said that he advised all Indigenous people to seek services elsewhere instead of going to the, the CIS. Another leader, Constant Awashish, Grand Chief of the Atikimek Nation, pointed out that problems at the Joliet Hospital were mentioned in a provincial inquiry into the discrimination faced by Indigenous people, saying, quote, I don't think it was possible that Castongue was unaware an interview that he did with the with Radio Canada. So obviously, people have known for years 
that this was happening within the, uh, the, the Joliet Hospital, within that, that group of centers in, in uh, the La Naudière CIS. Everybody knew that it was happening, and now they're denying that it, it was happening. And you know the way that politics works. In an effort to fix everything, you just move the leader. So Castonguay has been moved uh, to other places within the uh, Quebec health system uh, and apparently is doing his work or is doing his part to help the COVID-19 efforts. Black civil servants file a class action against the federal government. This week, a lawsuit was issued in federal court that alleges decades-long discrimination in, in several federal departments. This class action suit claims that the government has excluded Black federal employees from being promoted. The initial filing includes 12 people, but could ultimately cover tens of thousands of people who have worked in the federal public service since 1970. Plaintiffs are asking for, one, $900 million in damages, two, a declaration from the government that it infringed on the group's charter rights, and three, a plan going forward to promote more Black employees. I think this story demonstrates how far we are from truly getting people to understand the distinct experiences of Black people. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples to kind of illustrate what I'm, what I'm trying to say here. Nicholas Marcus Thompson, who's one of the claimants, said, quote, Our exclusion at the top levels of the public service, in my view, have really disenfranchised Canada from that talent and that ability and that culture that Black workers bring to the table and that different perspective. In response to these public statements that claimants are making in the media, the Canadian Human Rights Commission spokesperson Jeff Meldrum says, We know that Indigenous, Black, and other racialized people face many societal, institutional, and structural barriers to equality. That is why work is underway to ensure that the views and perspectives of Indigenous, Black, and other racialized employees on barriers that may exist within the commission are heard and addressed, end quote. Now, as, as much as I, I appreciate that it may be difficult to speak specifically to the group that is filing the lawsuit, I think there is merit to speaking specifically to Black people and acknowledging that all racialized people are not experiencing the same thing, especially within institutions that, that have an employment relationship with, with, with people. Anti-Black racism is a thing for a reason. We're talking about it for a reason. In keeping with the diversity and inclusion trend, NASDAQ seeks mandatory board diversity for its listed companies. NASDAQ is pushing for the more than 3,000 companies listed on its U.S. stock exchange to make their boardrooms less white and less male. The company filed a proposal on Tuesday with the Securities and Exchange Commission that, if approved, would require all companies on the exchange to disclose the breakdowns of their boards by race, gender, and sexual orientation. The minimum requirement, if this passes, would be that boards of listed companies would have at least two diverse directors, and if they cannot comply, they have to explain why they were not able to find two diverse board members. Now, this, I think, is certainly a move in the right direction. Sure. I think it's really interesting that it's NASDAQ and that it's not kind of the government, since the U.S. government has a history of affirmative action programs. What do you think? 
Um, I, yeah, I'm not sure of the details behind that. I think that there's been a pu- if if I read correctly, there's been a push within Nasdaq to make this reality for some time. I kind of wanted to point point us to the to, to the Canadian perspective on this. Yeah. Um, I mean, every year since 2014 in the province of Ontario, the TSX has required companies to disclose gender diversity initiatives to shareholders. Yep. But the so-called comply or explain rule doesn't actually require companies to adopt those policies um, or set any targets. So maybe that should change. And as a matter of fact, this was, um, I believe this was back in the summertime, but that same task force, which again, was appointed by the Ministry of Finance in Ontario, um, they're recommending that, uh, or they want to recommend that TSX listed company boards have 40% women and 20% BIPOC individuals. Okay. So we need to be doing the same thing here. And I, I hope that just the same way that the NASDAQ is moved in this direction, you know, we do the same. Yeah. I have one thing that I caught when I was reading the article about NASDAQ. They said that they will... Their their diversity qualification is that you have to be, of course, a, a racial minority, mm-hmm. uh, a woman, or you need to identify as someone who is is of a minority sexual orientation, mm-hmm. which actually means that if companies wanted to, they could st- they could still have an all white all male board, but with two white gay guys. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to be clear when, when we're talking about representation, I think like this is obviously a great move just for visibility and just to know that the private sector is is going to do its part because historically the private sector has not um, been forced to, to do this kind of work. But there is still, you know, a, a, a bit of, of a push. Another quick story on representation Vicki Johnson is now the WNBA's only Black woman head coach. So often in in my work, I hear that, you know, representation is not possible because, you know, Black people aren't there, BIPOC people aren't there, women aren't, aren't there. We don't have the numbers. That's what they always say. We don't have the numbers. But this story is a perfect example of what often happens when we we do have the numbers and refuse to do the right thing. WNBA has 11 teams. It's a league where, similarly to the NBA, is largely made up of Black players. I mean, I think that that's similar to maybe almost any major league kind of sports is maybe a majority, um, maybe not Black, but racialized, certainly. Uh, And the WNBA is, you know, 70% Black, meaning 70% Black women, right? Because it's a women's league. So how is Vicky the minority when it comes to coaching staff? And what what is it that is happening? So she, she's not the first Black woman to, to serve as head coach. But at any given time, there is consistently one, one woman Black head coach. What is there like a threshold of one for Black women as head coaches in the league? Like, can we not like break that, that glass ceiling in the WNBA? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I... When you said that, all I could think about is um, the Ontario Liberal Party and the fact that there are currently two Black MPPs and there there essentially have always only been something like two or three Black MPPs in a province like Ontario. And it's like, why is it that we are being excluded? In, in areas where, so in this case, right, Black women 
should be in control of their affairs in the WNBA. Yeah. <laughs> Why is it that people who should be in control of their own affairs do not get, get the power to do so? And then we also have to ask, and uh, you know, after that, why is it the people who do get the power are usually white men? Right. <laughs> oh, to that point, there are 11 teams, and the gender race breakdown is as follows. Three white women are serving as head coach, two black men, and five white men. And then Vicky. It makes no sense. No, like absolutely mind-numbingly like lack of of sense like there's nothing you could say to me to provide a justification for this other than you know the very obvious answer that these teams are owned by white men Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know what Curtis this this is this is a funny story I I think it's it's funny in the saddest way possible Ottawa's largest school board has now banned any use of the N-word at school, including in in in-class discussions. (laughs) Are you still there? I'm sorry. (laughs) Is this this me or is this this a bit late? late? So apparently apparently this is not late for Ottawa. Um, The Ottawa Carleton District School Board issued a directive on Tuesday, December 1st, of 2020 <laughs> to clarify expectations around what has become a contentious issue, whether it is ever acceptable to utter racial slurs. So Ottawa's largest school board has, you know, confirmed that staff should never utter racial slurs such as the N word during the class. But how do we not know this already? So I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, they do know this. But they're doing this because they've been prompted to clarify expectations because of recent media discussion on the topic. Earlier this fall, a part-time University of Ottawa professor ignited a controversy after she uttered the N-word during a class lecture about how marginalized groups such as people of color, the disabled, um, and the LGBTQ plus community have reappropriated offensive words. A student complained the professor was suspended during an investigation and then quickly reinstated. Lots of people on campus condemned the professor while a group of other professors signed a petition defending her academic freedom. University of Ottawa president Jack Fremont issued statements saying the university condemns racism, but also supports academic freedom. You know, the, the I, I kind of want to, so I'm going to make a comment about this professor that we're talking about, not necessarily the fact that Ottawa is only now realizing that the N-word is bad. Her story was politicized. It really was from both sides, which is, I think it's a teachable moment because if you actually read her perspective on this, she says, oh, I didn't realize I was wrong, but I realize now. And it's something I would never do again. And she also calls out even her own government for politicizing the issue. (laughs) It doesn't have to be this contentious. Right, we can we can approach these matters of societal discord, and we can use you know we can we can we can keep the temperature low to get to a place of understanding and agreement. This is an example of something that was made into something worse. It didn't have to be. I just I just thought I didn't insert that comment in there. I I do want to go back to the group of professors that signed a petition defending her academic freedom because mm-hmm. what that what that 
how that how that kind of positions the story is to say that her using this derogatory slur was within her academic freedom, and mm. it, it is not. It is not. Um, and uh, we need to be. I mean, I, I, I myself, I'm, a, I'm an academic, and I, I am very careful with you know, like positioning and, and use of words, and you know, there's a lot of power that professors hold when they're in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really like we, we, we should try to separate academic freedom from ignorance, which I, I agree with what you're saying. It, it, if, if she is admitting that she was ignorant and she didn't, she did not know that this was not acceptable and that this would be hurtful or harmful to her students. Okay. Yeah. You should be reinstated. You shouldn't lose your entire kind of career, especially if you're not calling a student the racial slur, right? You're just mm-hmm. kind of using it to, to illustrate something. But um, yeah, my, my only comment is really around that academic freedom and around like the Ottawa Carleton District School Board. Like, okay, like, can you not like make a, a big deal out of something that, that like, at least phrase your statement uh, in your, your press release as a restating of what is already a, a established value, you know, rather than announcing that um, using the N-word is unacceptable of course it's unacceptable to utter racial slurs to four-year-olds in kindergarten like obviously (laughs) but anyway i mean everything isn't so obvious so maybe maybe it is necessary yeah it depends on who you're talking to so we've been noticing how over the past few months in the summertime in particular there has been an increase in gun violence And Toronto's very own Kofi Hope wrote an excellent piece published in The Star last week in response, while addressing what we should do to confront it. In his article, he reminds us that, quote, gun violence is actually a complex issue, more a symptom of larger illnesses than an ailment in and of itself. Quote, street-level gun violence is fed by the multi-billion dollar drug trade in Canada, which gets its money from, who else? Canadian drug users. So if we remove illicit demand through legalization like Vancouver and Oregon are doing, we remove the demand for those street-level gangs. We also have to encourage investments in challenged communities that point to STEM opportunities and entrepreneurship. So like I said, just just wanted to draw our attention to to a, a bright, young, capable Black man who is taking the time to envision how to make Toronto a safer place for all of us. Moving on to world news, Republican judges choose the U.S. Constitution over Trump as election fraud cases get dismissed left, right, and center. It seems as though Trump and his campaign legal team thought that just because he appointed the judges on the bench, that they would be sympathetic to his cause. In fact, Trump has often boasted about the number of conservative judges that he has appointed, and in the past has even implied that he expected for them to rule in his favor. Well, nope. (laughs) (laughs) Judges appointed by the Republican and Democratic presidents alike have said no bueno to those attempts to claim election fraud by Trump and his team. A review was actually recently done on how the nine federal Trump appointees voted. And well, let's just say they ain't loyal. No, they ain't. (laughs) None of the nine judges assigned to seven of the 13 total cases ruled in favor of the campaign's election fraud allegations. So it's clear that these judges chose the U.S. 
constitution over the orange Cheeto. Yep, they uh, and they chose right. I, I just kind of wanted to make a comparison to Canada because um, there was concern when Stephen Harper, our last conservative prime minister, uh, when he was appointing judges, there was concern that he would be trying to stack the court to the right. And, and uh, actually, he did try to do that. But an analysis that was done in 2016 or 2017, basically after he was gone, it pointed out the fact that actually, like, if you look at what those judges ruled on and how they ruled, they weren't conservative at all. At all, They continued to be quite centrist, if not left-leaning. Now for questions from the audience this week, we want to talk about the Black folks who are suing the federal government. The Black claimants suing the federal government are asking for $900 million in damages, a declaration of violation of this group's charter rights, in a sense, an apology, and a plan to promote more Black people. Do you think the government is willing to give the claimants all three? Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We're releasing pods on a weekly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. We now have our own Instagram page dedicated to the podcast. Follow us at The Drift to You. Black people, we hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Stephen Fissett, who graciously provided artwork for this podcast. If you like what you see, you can find him on Instagram at Scarborough Debutante. That's Scarborough, D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E, for all your graphic design needs. See y'all next time. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.